Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 13. Lieutenant Bridgman. Sergeant Nash, missing second day. Private Bilting, wounded fourth day. Private Dwyer, Private Brogan. Number four section, Sergeant Leyland, killed third day. Corporal Marsden, Lance Corporal Hudson, Private Laverty. Private Wilcox, killed third day. Private Cowper. Private Gregory, wounded fourth day. Private McGrath. 
Private Keeley, wounded fourth day. Private Adams, Private Chambers. Private Wallace, killed third day. Number five section, Sergeant Blake. Corporal Heibling, killed fourth day. Lance Corporal Cobbled. Private Hardy, wounded fourth day. Private Ewing. Private Matthews, killed first day. Private Jennings, wounded fourth day. Private Butcher, wounded fourth day. Private Stewart, killed fourth day. Private Taylor, wounded fourth day. Private Bignall. Private Sadler, wounded fourth day. Number six section, Sergeant Gorman. Corporal Armstrong, killed fourth day. Lance Corporal Summers. Private Woodley. Private Stores, killed third day. Private Cummings, Private Lydon. Private Fraser, wounded fourth day. Private Jarvis, wounded second day. Private Mocock. Private Chamberlain, wounded fourth day. Private Norfolk, wounded fourth day. Headquarter section. Sergeant Murray. Corporal McEwen. Lance Corporal Manning, killed second day. Private Walk, Private Bowbrow, Private Muldoon, missing second day. Private O'Neill, Private Edwards, wounded second day. Private Bannum, Private Waterson, Private Black, wounded second day. Private Cassidy. Alan Bridgman looked up from the dirty half-sheet of paper in front of him and stared out at the mist-white lightening of the fifth day. He tried not to think about the dead men individually, but it was no use. Nearly all of them he had known well, intimately. Their faces, their peculiarities, amusing incidents in which they'd played more or less prominent parts, all these broke into and interrupted the constructive train of his thought. He felt sure that Jim Nash was dead. He could not imagine anything but a death or a crippling wound preventing the big sergeant from rejoining his platoon. And wherever he was, there Muldoon would be, and if alive, the humour of this one-track mind directed against the iniquities of the English. Eric Leyland Bridgman felt the salt of tears and a sudden drying in his throat. He shook his head in surprise at himself and as a physical act to dismiss sentiment from his mind. But the image of Leyland could not be easily obliterated. As his lips tightened at the remembrance of the sergeant's death, Alan realised with something of relief that his threatened tears were more of anger than of grief. Anything more pointless than Leyland's death was hard to imagine. Alan felt sure that the incident had its root somewhere in Italy, for at some point in the campaign there, he had noticed a more pronounced withdrawal on the part of the normally reticent section commander. But he could not fix the time and place when it had started. What it was didn't really matter. Leyland was dead, unnecessarily dead, and the platoon much the weaker as a consequence. A part of Bridgman accepted without question Leyland's disregard for his own life, but what he could not come to terms with was the futility of the sergeant's death, the profitless waste. He made a conscious effort and organised his thoughts. His platoon was down to half strength and he had to make a decision about what to do with Blake's and Marsden's sections. At the moment they were still combined and holding the position at the road and track junction. To separate them would mean reinforcing both with men from his remaining two sections. Murray's headquarters section was fairly strong and Gorman's was not in too bad shape. Four weak or three reasonably strong units, that was the choice. Alan decided to leave things as they were for the present if the situation altered or the platoon's position in the perimeter was changed, he would have to think again. Alan looked across to his right to where Gorman's men held the position previously held by Leyland and after his death by Marston. He could see the thin sergeant's face showing greyly above the parapet of his slit trench to the right of his Bren group. Gorman was a good man to have in a tight corner, perhaps as good as Blake. It was hard to tell. Bridgman preferred Blake as a person and he wondered why. If he became a casualty, Blake would take over. This would be automatic. The army had precise rules about the transfer of command to the next almost senior in rank, 
although in practice it did not always work out. One NCO might be a better section commander than another, but a less effective platoon commander, and this was true right up the ladder of command. Nearly every man had a ceiling above which his efficiency ceased to be 100%. The ground mist had lifted completely, and Bridgman turned and looked at the company positions. As his eyes passed over the buildings to his rear, they were arrested by a slight movement, and after a moment's concentration he was able to identify the figure of Tim Jordan standing alone against the wall of the house. Alan felt a rare wave of compassion as he looked at his CO. At his worst, Jordan could be irritable and unfair over details. At his best, it would be difficult to find his equal. Alan knew the older man felt a deeper and more sincere sense of personal loss for the dead men of the company than he did himself, and again, he found himself wondering why this was so. He turned back and looked out over the shrubberies towards the railway embankment. Self-analysis was something from which he had always refrained. He believed that it could only lead to disillusionment, disgust and inadequacy, and if carried beyond the field of introspection into the realm of action, to suicide. He knew Jordan had the empathetic ability to project himself into and understand nearly every one of the diverse characters under his command. Alan felt it not impossible that he too might possess the same capacity, but he did not wish to exercise it. He saw very often the workings of other men's minds. He saw the motives which prompted them to certain courses of action, motives of marginal gain, of concern for their own safety, and the scores of other reasons of varying relevance which prompted the course of their actions. He saw, but he did not want to understand. By understanding, he would associate himself with what he considered weakness. Understanding could be followed very easily by a sympathetic tolerance of cowardice, which he saw as an unforgivable vice, as a too ready acceptance of the frailty of human nature. Understanding affected both the weak and the strong. The weak might grow marginally stronger, but the strong must grow appreciably weaker. It was easier to destroy than to build. He was an entity, complete in himself, inviolate for so long as he stood alone, his approach to friendship calculated, and to some degree academic. His close friendship with Gordon Brown was possible because Gordon made no demands upon his privacy. Gordon was prepared to accept him, exactly as he was, suppressing the ebullient questing of a warm nature out of consideration of Alan's obvious desire to surrender very little of his private self. Sudden firing from the southwest, from down near the north bank of the Nader Rhine, brought Alan out of his rare introspection. The border regiment was either under attack or had surprised an enemy patrol. From every part of the company position he could detect the faint whispering of movement as heads were cocked and men listened, each man building up a personal picture of what might be happening below them and to their left. The firing died as suddenly as it had started and Alan's thoughts explored the divisional situation as he knew it. The fifth day might bring many things but they would all be unpleasant. The previous day's action had demolished any possibility that the 1st Airborne Division could again adopt an aggressive line of action. As the platoon had returned to the company area on the previous afternoon, they had been in time to see Brigadier Hackett bring the last of 4th Brigade into the divisional perimeter. 60 men of one battalion, 100 of another. The 3rd of his battalions, the 11th, had been virtually wiped out in the centre of Arnhem. Any plans the divisional commander might have had for a movement to the east could no longer be put into practice, for there no longer existed a force with anything like the potential required to break the enveloping ring of German armour and infantry. From now on, they would be able at the very best only to hold a small perimeter and hope that Second Army would arrive in time to take advantage of their precarious foothold north of the last river barrier between themselves and Berlin. Gorman called softly for the second time. Bridgman was staring straight ahead, but his mind was obviously elsewhere. 
O'Neill touched his arm and spoke to him, and Bridgman immediately turned and looked towards the section sergeant. Gorman pulled back his smock sleeve and mimed looking at his watch. The officer looked at his own, grinned suddenly, nodded his head, and turning away, he signalled to the other sections to stand down. Gorman detailed two men as sentries, sent another back to Company HQ to investigate the possibility of heating water for a brew-up, and then, with the detached automatic movements of the trained soldier, set about cleaning his Sten gun. He wondered whether he would ever do it again. Barring a miracle, he could see nothing to prevent the Germans from launching an all-out and concentrated attack on a selected area of the perimeter. He knew there was no defence in depth. Once through the outer line, the Germans would find nothing between themselves and the backs of the men facing the opposite direction. The operation, as originally intended, was finished. Perhaps 21st Army Group no longer had any intention of exploiting their bridgehead, but were pushing on only with the object of rescuing what remained of the division. Gorman looked at the men as they stood in pairs in their slit trenches, one man cleaning his weapon while the other watched the front. The same pairs drank together, hawed together, shared their food and their cigarettes, became so associated as one entity that section and platoon commanders thought of one as synonymous with the other, posted them together as sentries and sent them out together as scouts or on a foraging party. To think of one name was to think immediately of the other. As Gorman unloaded a magazine and rubbed each round with a piece of flannelette before replacing it, he tried to think of individuals who had always stood alone in the company, men whom he did not immediately associate with another man. It had always been Blake and Leyland. Now there was only Blake. John Murray and Marsden's Bren Gunner Laverty were both Belfast men and when off duty were always together. The difference in their rank had forced Bridgman to make a point of keeping them in, always in different sections, but their friendship continued, although it would probably have been frowned upon in another unit. He himself and Ted Armstrong had always been inseparable. They had been called up together and had done their infantry training at the same depot. They had both volunteered and been transferred to the parachute regiment at the same time. Together, they had come to the independent company, and via Africa, Sicily and Italy, they had arrived in Holland, he as a section commander, and Armstrong as his second in command. And now Ted was dead. It was hard for Gorman to believe that yesterday morning they had laughed together and shared a cigarette, taking turns at sucking on a crumpled butt, and that now Ted was dead and gone completely from his life. That as he slipped the 9mm bullets back into the magazine, the body of his friend lay in the empty tower or in an enemy dug grave somewhere near it, and that they would never laugh again together or share anything any more. If he, Gorman, were killed, they would still be separated by the time that would lie between their dying. Marsden. Tom Marsden had no particular friend. In some respects, he was similar to Alan Bridgman. He mixed casually with many of the platoon, attaching himself more often than not to Fraser and Hardy, but always with a slight air of defiance and an attitude which implied that he knew they were public schoolmen, but that he did not hold that against them. Bridgman himself was a friend of Gordon Brown, but when Gorman thought about it, he realised that in fact Bridgman was not all that close to Brown. He was simply closer to him than he was to anyone else. Gorman let his mind wander through the company, identifying men in pairs and threes. The desire for the warmth and affection of friendship was everywhere apparent, except in the cases of Bridgman and Marsden. Marsden was single, but Bridgman was married and the father of a son and a daughter. Gorman wondered whether the platoon commander had taken to his marriage the same detached attitude which marked him out in the company, whether he looked on his leaves and his marital bed in the same way as he looked on a night out drinking with Brown or some other acquaintance something pleasurable and to be enjoyed, but in no way more than an interruption in the serious and absorbing business of war. He looked across to where Bridgman's expressionless face showed, 
tired and drawn, above the slit trench, and then his eyes drifted to the faint movement in the trees which screamed Ramsden's platoon as they lay facing the open ground to the west. He looked down at the road and track junction, at the ditched jeep. On the previous evening, after the platoon's return from the supply drop, they had got comfortably in position, hoping for a respite from the snipers who had challenged their return. Just as quiet had descended, a jeep had come blinding down the track in front of Ramsden's platoon and swung onto the road at the bottom. The snipers opened up, the jeep swerved violently and a heavily built figure jumped out. It scrambled nimbly over the cattle fence and doubled smartly up the 50-yard gradient to Tim Jordan's headquarters. A pretty active performance for a major general in his 40s. Gorman grinned to himself. General Urquhart had not been immediately recognised and he had had some fairly abusive language directed at him by various members of the company who considered it out of order for a stranger to attract fire on their positions. The jeep had been knocked out and the general's ADC had left it and limped up to join the GOC. Gorman looked at the jeep, lonely, abandoned. Were they all in the same boat? How forceful was the effort that was being made to relieve them? He shrugged and studied the jeep. Did being a general's jeep make it any different from the others? Was there a jeep heaven, or did they go to the same heaven as men and serve their masters there? If so, then after this action there would be quite a parade before the Lord God of Hosts, Perhaps General Urquhart would find himself leading a march past the Almighty in that very jeep, for there was no divine right of commanders. They were killed as easily as privates, and Urquhart took more risks than most of his rank. Gorman supposed that the situation had deteriorated to such an extent that Roy Urquhart's most important role had become one of inspiration. By his presence and activity, he could strengthen the will of his officers and men to resist. With no reserves, there was little else he could do. Gorman wondered why Urquhart was called Roy, he knew that was not his name. He thought it was Ronald. After the division's return from Italy, Urquhart had taken over its command, and as a non-airborne man, at first he had been resented. At every level, men had been angry that the 1st Brigade's commander had not been given command of the division, but Urquhart had gone quietly about his task and had become accepted. He was now Roy Urquhart to everyone in airborne forces. Gorman sighed. He trusted Bridgman, Jordan, the Brigadiers and Urquhart, and even more important, he trusted nearly every man in the independent company. He wondered what it would have been like to be in a situation as bad as the one they were in and be with men and commanders he could not trust. He reached for his water bottle and drank a careful mouthful. He wondered at his lack of appetite. They had all landed with one 48-hour ration pack. They had had no other food, and it was now the fifth day. Blake took his beret off and scratched the back of his head. He had an old scar which itched only when he was tired or hot. Now he was both. He looked at his watch. Nearly four o'clock. In a few more hours they would have survived another day. They would be sheltered by darkness. He found himself wishing for the comfort of the night. It must come. Night must fall. That had been the name of a film. Who had been in it? Ah yes, Robert Montgomery. Blake thought it was the best film the actor had ever made. He had been young when he had seen it, and he had found the film exciting but frightening. He remembered one scene of dusk and trees. He looked round him. It might have been this very place for the same menace hung in the air. He looked at his men's faces and wondered how much longer they could last without food or water, with little sleep and with hope which must grow fainter as the hours dragged by. He looked up the track to the north and at the smashed six-pounder in front of him. The previous evening, they had been shelled over open sights from a range of a couple of hundred yards. Bridgman had sent down an additional Piat group with instructions that it was not to give away its position unless it was certain of a kill. The Piat had a range of about 115 yards. The German self-propelled guns had edged their way forward, firing the occasional shell as they came. 
One had come within range, but had remained screened from view. Before Blake could stop him, the gunner, a big German Jew who had spent his early years in Berlin, had got ponderously to his feet and walked almost slowly into the centre of the road carrying the pit. He had lain down as if he had all the time in the world, and taking careful aim he had fired and hit the German SP. Then, as the gunner came back to the section position, he had been shot through the stomach. He had put his gun carefully down alongside his number two, and with one hand held over his gut, he had walked back to company headquarters, muttering over and over again in his comic opera accent, stuffing German bastards, stuffing German bastards. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to Zeno's The Cauldron. They had heard the clank of the other SPs and tanks as they retired, uncertain of the range of the weapon which had knocked out one of their number. During the night, a six-pounder anti-tank gun and its Polish crew had arrived, the men in hilarious spirits. Even when the situation had been explained to the Polish subaltern, he still treated the occasion as one which lent itself to amusing banter. It was a great game. At first light, he would show his English friends how he had knocked out German tanks in Africa. Despite Bridgman's and Blake's protests, he had insisted on setting up his gun in the middle of the road, its barrel pointing in approximately the right direction. Bridgman and Blake had crouched in the section post, listening to the continuous chatter of the Polish crew. When it had become obvious that the anti-tank gunners were not prepared to listen to the warnings of the men who had been on the spot all day, Bridgman had gripped Blake's arm. You're too close to them. You'll collect half of whatever's aimed at them. Withdraw your section to what was Gorman's old position, and as soon as it's over, get back again as smart as you can. When they've knocked the gun out, Jerry might follow up with an infantry attack. Blake had done as he was ordered, and in the first light he strained his eyes towards the crossroads, gradually made out the figures of the poles grouped around their gun, and heard the murmur of their voices. It was ridiculous. He could not make up his mind whether the poles were incredibly brave or completely unrealistic. Their position gave them the best field of fire, but the contempt they showed for the Germans was quite unwarranted. The German guns were bigger, and they also had cover from view. The Germans must have been so surprised that at first they looked for some trick. The seconds dragged as Blake peeped into the morning light. He could see the trees and bushes to the north which sheltered the German armour, and still they did not fire. He started to hope that they had moved back during the night, but he knew that they had not, for he would have heard them. Waiting for the first shot, he felt the same as when, after lighting a safety fuse, one waited for the explosion. It had to come, but the inability to calculate time accurately prevented one from being quite sure when. The Germans had fired only twice, and one pole had staggered into Blake's position as he led his section back. He had a lump of metal in his shoulder and a look of outraged surprise on his face. It should not have gone this way at all. All the German armour should have been knocked out in devastating style. The pole's pride had been more hurt than his body. The other three poles lay round their smashed gun. They had shown their contempt for the Germans for the last time. Now Blake put his berry back on his head and called softly to Tom Marsden. I'm going back to see Bridgie. Take over for a bit. Marsden nodded a fierce angry face and Blake smiled as he crawled back to the cover of the nearest bushes, wondering whether Tom knew what he was angry about. It was doubtful whether he did. Things were not going according to plan. If Tom could have found a definite culprit, he would still have been angry. But it would have been a happier anger, one with a positive direction. As it was, it burned into him and Blake was a little anxious that in his frustration, Marsden might take some unnecessary risk. He joined Bridgman to the left of Gorman's men. They exchanged smiles, but neither spoke for some minutes. 
The area in which they'd been dug in for days had become familiar, something that belonged to them. It was another billet, in some ways worse than previous ones, but nevertheless their home for the ever-changing present which is part and parcel of a soldier's life. The positions on their 60-yard front were dug 15 yards back from the road and, on the rising ground, were seven or eight feet above it. The trees in the grounds behind them were sparse, their branches and twigs broken and their trunks scarred by the mortar bombs, shells and bullets the Germans had poured into the small area. To their right, the road continued past Gordon Brown's positions towards Arnhem. Where the two platoons joined, the houses began, and 80 or 90 yards up the road, the German tanks, which had been caught in the trap on the third day, lay like scavenged bones. To the west, the trees were more solid and continuous, like one side of an avenue, and beneath them Ramsden watched the open ground. In front of Blake and Bridgman was the big house and the overgrown gardens. Their unbroken field of fire was no more than 25 or 30 yards. The close concealment of the cover in front of them was oppressive. Why don't they come, sir? One squadron of armour and an infantry battalion, and they would be through us like a knife through butter, and nothing else between them and Div HQ. Christ only knows, Bob. If they had any sense, they'd shift the way to their armour round to the west. The borders must be bloody well dug in by now, but they're an open country. They're good troops, but it doesn't matter how good they are, no understrength battalion could stop a really determined panzer attack across that sort of country if it were pushed home. Perhaps they think more landings might be made near the bridge and they're waiting for that. Blake scratched the stubble on his chin and when he spoke he did so almost apologetically. You know, sir, I think they're frightened of us. I think they're hoping that our food, water and ammunition will run out and that we shall have to pack it in because we'll have nothing left to fight with. You might be right in that, but I shouldn't put too much faith in it. If we were all back in Oosterbeek, I should feel happier. If the whole of our perimeter was in a built-up area, their armour would be of less value to them. They'd have to wiggle us out, house by house, and they'd have stuffing heavy casualties if they tried it. Murray watched the heads of the two men in the command post. Bridgman and Blake, Leyland and Blake, Bridgman and Gorman, Gorman and Blake. He wondered what held them closer to each other than to him. The question was not a new one. He had been over it all before, and had even discussed it with levity. It wasn't class. Bridgman had been to a public school, Leyland to a grammar school, Gorman and Blake to neither. It had nothing to do with that and he could not make himself believe that his being Irish had anything to do with it either. Gorman was junior to him in their rank, but it had been Gorman who had been given the command of the infantry section when Newcomb had been killed in Italy, while he had merely continued with headquarters section. After Leyland's death, Bridgman had made no move to give Murray the command. He had been content for Marsden to take over, and had Blake's section not had so many casualties as to make it impracticable for it to continue to operate as a subunit, Marsden would still have been on his own. Murray grunted and looked across at McEwen. The big corporal was crouched half sideways in his slit trench, his legs bunched under him, his hands linked behind his head, and his eyes closed. Murray didn't like McEwen, but he wasn't quite sure why. The corporal was new to the company, joining it after its return from Italy. This was his first action with them, and so far Murray had found nothing to criticise except a cautious sullenness in the corporal's approach to any job he was given, but caution was not on its own a bad sign. McEwen was tough, all right. Murray had seen him take on an American who must have weighed 15 or 16 stone. McEwen had been put down four times, but he had won in the end by sheer guts and doggedness. Standing over the exhausted American, his eyebrows gaping open, his lips in shreds and his face lumpier than usual, McEwen had looked as if nothing less than a tiger tank could stop him. Despite this, for some reason he could not explain, Murray did not trust the corporal as he trusted other men in the platoon. He felt sure that Bridgman and the other section commanders thought as he did, although none had ever mentioned it. 
Murray watched Blake leave Bridgman's slip trench and crawl back to his own. He wondered if perhaps he was not trusted by the others in the same way that McEwen was not trusted. He breathed heavily in sudden anger. If it were true, they had no right, no grounds for distrust. He had been with the company a long time, and he had never let them down yet. But in any tricky or particularly dangerous situation, it was always one of the other sections which was used or put into the difficult position. Murray grunted again, his grey, shapeless face, expressionless. Time would tell. McEwen wakened suddenly. For a moment, Murray detected fear in the corporal's startled eyes. Then the look was gone. McEwen struggled up and looked over the parapet towards the grounds of the big house. He turned to Murray. There's not a bloody thing happened since first light. What the stuffing hell are they waiting for? They know where we are. Why don't they come and get us? Waiting's hard, isn't it, Mac? Murray's voice was flat and emotionless. It's often like this, but you know all about that, don't you? You were with the 51st Highlandive. Wasn't it like this in the desert sometimes? Of course, they were farther away, but there must have been times when you weren't actually fighting. Murray wasn't very subtle. His sarcasm was as heavy as lead. McEwen stared back at him, his small, deep sunken eyes glinting dangerously under his heavy boned brows. Bollocks! The Scot spat into the bottom of the trench and reached for his water bottle. Murray smiled without showing his teeth. Suddenly, he knew what was wrong with McEwen. Tim Jordan came back from General Urquhart's order group at eight o'clock that evening. The division was too thin on the ground to continue to hold its present positions. The perimeter was to be contracted. The independent company, which had been stuck out on a limb to the northwest since the withdrawal of 4th Brigade, was to move over to the east, to the Arnhem side, to fill the gap which existed between the force being built up under Major Lonsdale, immediately north of the Naderine, and the remnants of 4th Brigade. The gap had not been of too much importance while elements of the division had been in the centre of the town, fighting their way towards the bridge, but now they had been pulled back, and it was what was left of those battalions which went to make up the bulk of the Lonsdale force in the south. There was an uncomfortably large gap between this new force and the survivors of 4th Brigade. Two hours after darkness had finally closed down, the company slipped quietly from its positions and pulled back. Bridgman's platoon was the last to leave the area, and he stood with Jordan in the shadows of the trees near the house which had held company headquarters. They talked together in whispers. By Jordan's side stood the Dutchman who owned the house. He had been a captain of artillery in the Dutch army, and now that the company was moving out, his only concern was that they were abandoning a good defensive position. He was a tall, thin, silent man, and he had insisted upon accompanying the independent company to their new positions. He still had faith in the eventual arrival of Second Army. Glancing at the man's shadowed profile, Bridgman felt a strong emotional upsurge, a sense of warmth and kinship with the Dutchman. He personified the resistance of the Dutch people, who had a frightening faith not only in the eventual triumph of the Allied forces, but also in the immediate success of the action being fought on their doorsteps. The Dutch gunner officer was staying with the company until Second Army broke through and joined up with the airborne forces north of the Rhine. A subdued commotion in the avenue of trees running south into the divisional area interrupted their conversation and Jordan moved away to investigate. Bridgman joined Blake and the bulk of the platoon where they crouched in the shadow of the bushes. The subaltern whispered quickly, I'm going to have a look at Marsden and Adams. I shan't be a couple of minutes. Hang on here. Blake nodded in the darkness and watched Bridgman melt into cover as he moved down the bank to the Bren group, who had been left to prevent any interference with the company's withdrawal. Jordan came back and bent over Blake. Where's Mr Bridgman? He's checking with the covering party, sir. Oh, my idiot of a driver has put a back wheel of the jeep in one of Mr Ramsden's slip trenches. We can't get it out loaded with ammo. We're late now and we'll have to move off without it. 
Tell Mr Bridgman to leave one section behind to unload it and to lift it out of the trench. They'll have to rejoin us as soon as they finish. Blake whispered his acknowledgement of the message and Jordan moved off to join the remainder of the company where they lay in a long line facing the south, each man's face only inches from the boots of the man in front of him. Blake and the last section unloaded the jeep, very conscious of the Germans 150 yards away from them in the little neck of wood across the open field. Marston and Adams crouched behind their Bren in a slip trench, facing the big house and the gardens, which lay between them and the railway embankment. Marston was angry. Adams was frightened. Marston strained his eyes and ears. Peering into the shadows in front of him, his head cocked, he strove to accept and then ignore the sounds made by Blake and his men as they offloaded the ammunition from the jeep. He could hear faintly the sound of tracked vehicles moving about somewhere beyond where the north running track turned and disappeared from sight. He thought the tanks were probably withdrawing to lager for the rest of the night. Blake's men were making a bloody lot of noise. Why the hell didn't they take their time? They had all night. It was better to spend longer at the job and get it done than to attract attention and get themselves and the company reserve of ammo blown sky high. He could feel the faint trembling of Adam's body where it touched his own. What's the matter with you? Scared? No, not scared, Corporal. Nervous, I think. How long are we going to stay here? It was to be half an hour after the company left, but that was before they ditched the jeep. I shall have to give them longer now. I expect Blake will come down before he goes. We'll see what he has to say. They could hear the sound of small arms fire at many points of the perimeter as both sides patrolled the area between the lines, an area which was getting less and less as the German army closed its grip on the crippled division. Marsden's head moved suddenly in the darkness and his whisper came sharp and clear. There, to the right of the gate, in the bushes. What? Where? Adams's jerked, whispered questions were an automatic reaction to shield him from what he knew, but did not want to know. He had heard the corporal, and even as his own questions sounded, the answer slipped into place in his brain. He started to move, but it was too late. Marston's shoulder hit him, pushing the unsoldier to one side, away from the gun. Adams fell back, half sprawling with one leg tucked under him, his head below the parapet of the trench. Looking up, his mouth open and his breath coming quickly, he saw Marston take his place behind the Bren, swing its barrel round and then pause for what seemed an age before opening up with a long burst which shattered the silence and made the night alive with reverberating echoes which rolled back on the two men, the ricochets of sound. Adam's brain worked blindly, spasmodically for a few seconds and then he was thinking coolly, as he always wanted to think. He was on the wrong side of Marsden to act as his number two. Standing up, he forced his way behind the corporal, squeezing between the NCO's buttocks and the back of the trench. Even as he moved, he was undoing his pouch and getting out a magazine to replace the one on the gun. Marsden was still firing. Adams wanted to look, but was afraid that if he did, he would again be found unready when he was wanted. Instead, he stared right at the centre of the Bren, and when Marsden's hand flew up and removed the empty magazine, Adams was ready with a full one, and the change was effected with the precision of a drill movement on a barrack square. Only then did Adams look down to the road and the bushes beyond. He could make out the forms of two bodies on the grass verge, on the far side of the road, but he could not remember whether or not they had been there earlier. It seemed to him that that stretch of the road had held so many bodies during the past two days that it was difficult to remember which they had moved and which they had not. He squinted at the corporal's silhouette. Marsden seemed not to be looking at the spot he had been firing at. Adams tried to follow the corporal's gaze and found himself looking at a moonlit glade between the house and the bushes, 
Then the open space was alive with running figures and his ears were again filled with sound as Marsden poured burst upon burst after the German patrol. Adams jerked his eyes away from the scene and back to the Bren and was only just in time for the second change. With the third magazine on the gun, Marsden did not fire again but crouched still and hunched, staring into the night. Adams too turned away and looked to the north. He wished his companion had been almost anyone else but Marsden. It was not that Adams disliked the corporal, it was just that there was no give in him, no warmth, no companionship. In the field, in the midst of a danger they all shared, Marsden drew closer to no one. The sounds from where Blake and the last section were working were faint now, and the engagements of other units seemed very far away. Adams swallowed, and after a quick glance at Marsden looked away again. As the excitement died out of him and his body quietened, he felt suddenly very depressed and tired to the point of exhaustion. He tried to think about when and how it would all end and found it impossible to imagine a conclusion that carried with it any hint of reality. His mind drifted to the strange eeriness of the moonlit gardens in front of him. As a boy he had seen A Midsummer Night's Dream and the scene in front of him reminded him so much of the play that he almost expected the king and queen of the fairies to appear in the glade to the right of the house. He pulled himself up. Somewhere in front of him were hundreds, perhaps thousands of the German army, men supported by guns, tanks and aircraft, and their foremost objective was his life and the lives of all the men left in the division. Blake joined them silently. What happened, Tom? Patrol, fighting patrol, I should think. Too many of them for a recce. They've stuffed off now, but they've left a few behind. Bastards! Blake smiled in the darkness. Tom Marsden could put more venom into a single word than anyone else Blake knew. We've got the jeep out. We'll hang on with you for another 20 minutes or so and then we'll all go back together. To the men filing behind it, the jeep, barely ticking over, seemed intent on generating a greater volume of sound than if it had been driven at the maximum revolutions of which its engine was capable. They followed its creeping bulk down the length of the avenue of trees. Blake walked in front, feeling with his feet for obstacles, on two or three occasions falling into an abandoned foxhole. At last they reached the road running east into Oosterbeek. Here Blake halted for a few minutes before making a decision. The road itself presented too great a temptation to trigger happy defenders and he had no idea which unit might be holding the approaches to this built-up area. He whispered to the driver, the man eased the jeep onto the pavement and the long crawl continued. The first firing broke out behind them and they heard the shots whistling past them to their right. Blake turned quickly, his intention to order a flat-out run for their own lines, but even as he turned, the defenders in Oosterbeek opened up and returned the fire. They were caught between the Germans and some unit of their own division. Blake slipped alongside the driving seat of the jeep as the first mortar bombs burst beyond his section, close to where the defenders must be dug in. The driver had stalled the engine. Blake whispered to him not to restart it. He crawled back behind the jeep to order the men into the cover of the front gardens of the houses, but Marsden had anticipated him. He found the corporal lying by an open gateway and lay down beside him. Marsden's voice came fierce in the sergeant's ear. We'll have to make a run for it. One of us had better go first to let those silly bastards know who we are. Blake stayed silent for a moment. No, we'll get in one of the houses till first light. You can't move down a road with both sides firing at you. You're too restricted. We could make it through the gardens, but that would mean leaving the jeep and the company's ammo. Marsden did not argue, and when the small arms fire was at its fiercest, and during a lull in the mortaring, the section pushed the jeep backwards into a garage and broke into a house alongside it. Halfway through a window, Bignall turned and whispered in an affected voice, You put the car away, dear. I'll go in and get the drinks. <laughs>